Hi, my name is Saul and welcome to The Story of London, a podcast focused upon the city, its residents and the people within it and what they experienced throughout history. I'm really grateful for this focus as it allows me to rattle along the history of the city at a relatively fast pace. But there are often issues away from London that will impact upon the city and will require more detailed explanation. For the residents of London in the year 1100, the men and women who walked its streets, there existed an event that did not take place anywhere near London. In fact, it happened very far, far away. But it was an event whose context and impact happened all around them. It became an event that was to change the geography and the very nature of London forever. And this event was the Crusades. It seems strange to say the Crusades changed the nature of London forever, but it's true. There exists a whole section of central London that would not look like it does today if the Crusades had not happened. And if you pay attention carefully at every single football match and protest march and music festival and even at every large concert in London you can actually still see symbols of the remnants of the Crusades in plain sight. Its legacy is always there. So, I feel we need to talk about that first crusade and what it was. This is not the story of the Crusades. I could not do such a subject proper justice. and Everything that follows in this episode is merely a brutal summary of an incredibly complicated and complex world and sequence of events. But by offering you, dear listener, a short, but I hope interesting take on what was going on, we can see how much of a surprising impact this event had upon London. All right, enough preamble. Time is pressing and there is much to cover. Hopefully you will, like me, find this a fascinating and entertaining wee story. Welcome then to chapter 55 of the story of London. A special episode about the First Crusade. Deus Vote. Christianity is, on paper anyway, the religion of peace. Peace and goodwill to all men. The religion of forgiveness and of turning the other cheek. Nothing was ever to stain this image as much as the Crusades. All of us now in the 21st century are utterly accepting of the idea that Christianity in the 11th century was way more militant, violent and somewhat brutal. But oddly enough, the evidence suggests that not all Christians were down with that at the time. Away in Eastern Europe, the Orthodox version of Christianity never glamorized war. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword, saith the Lord. And the Roman Empire, still alive at this time and called Byzantium by the people in the West, rightfully venerated diplomats and negotiation over conflict. War was, to the Christians of Byzantium, a last resort, a failure of Christian virtues to have won the day. At times, yes, necessary, 
at times, yes, inevitable, but never glamorous, and certainly never blessed by God. Such views were certainly not shared here in Western Europe. Here Christianity had been somewhat imprinted upon with the cultural norms of the barbaric Western European races who moved in when the Romans vacated. When Christian missionaries had preached to these rather crude and violent Goths and Franks and Jutes and Saxons and Lombards, they had to make adjustments for these people's predisposition towards solving issues with the point of a sword. These Christians would then seize upon the likes of Saint Augustine, a theologian who was writing when the Roman Empire was falling apart and who offered justifications that there could be such a thing as a just war. And ultimately, these theologians used this to reinforce the status quo of nobles, whose power was built upon their ability to organize violence. Those who preached peace and forgiveness to these people gained an unwelcome air, an accusation of cowardice that permeates the idea of pacifism to this day. But while Western Christian theologians did in time embrace and normalize systemic violence, not all had given up on Christianity being the religion of peace. For example, in the year 989, so just over a century before the crusade was called, a church council in Aquitaine declared that normal people should be allowed to live in peace and free from war. A year later, a bishop of Lupai declared that a no man could ever find the Lord during times of war. And a clear pacifist tradition began emerging in Western European Christian thought. At one point in 1038, an archbishop in France stated that all men above the age of 15 should declare themselves the enemy of any who broke the peace, leading to groups called the Leagues of Peace being formed, who became large body of peasants led by militant priests who would scour the French countryside and make war upon nobles who were making war upon anybody else. And then, with typical 11th century fashion, these leagues of peace began running amok and out of control and burned down and plundered entire villages and eventually they had to be put down by some nearby knights. Still, there was a movement to try and regulate and limit warfare in this era. By 1027, warfare was supposedly forbidden on the Sabbath. By the 1050s, this idea grew into the idea of the truce of God, which originally started by saying that there shouldn't be any wars on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Ascension Sunday, but then that was extended for the whole of Easter week, and then people added the period from Advent to the first Sunday after Epiphany, and then some people added the festival of Pentecost, and then they started adding the holy days of the Virgin Mary, along with the major days of saints. By the mid to late 1050s, the idea of the truce of God was entrenched, and seemingly spreading, there were desperate desires to stop Christians from killing other Christians in the name of Christ. But it's one thing to say this, and it's another thing to implement it. So just take on board, there were those who advocated that the purpose of the church was to instruct the corrupt and violent world in the peaceful ways of the risen Christ. But in the face of real politic and pragmatic considerations, they were always going to be a minority. Violence had its purpose in this world. And thus, the baseline theological quandary for many priests in the West became ultimately, how do we direct 
the violent nature of our Christian nobles in a way that doesn't damage the Christian society. Allow me to say here and now, I am missing out entire books worth of fine detail and intricate debate here. Please take on board that I am offering one narrator's incredibly simplified version of things. But in my defense, at least I'm telling you this is a simplification. This whole debate about directing Christian knights' aggression to not hit other Christians was only one factor in what led to the First Crusade. There were a multitude of other factors involved. I could be talking about the intricate politics of the Byzantine Empire, um, the precise nature of the detailed and very complex theological differences between the church in Rome and the church in Constantinople. I could go on about the incredibly complicated nature of the internal politics of the Muslim lands, a saga that had been unfolding for the last 500 years. I could talk about the arrival of Turkish barbarians from off the steppes and their impact upon settled and civilized Arab states. Um, we could talk about the impact of the conversion of those Turks to Islam. We could talk about the deep-rooted loyalty of a multitude of Christians who lived under Muslim rule and their continued support to remain under Muslim rule. We could talk about the explosion in the conversion of pagans across Europe and in Scandinavia. We could talk about the increasing desire to centralize power by monarchies in early medieval Europe. And all of these factors could each be an entire 45-50 minute chapter of this podcast. And I'd still only be summarizing and simplifying the issues involved in causing the First Crusade. So, to return to our narrative and to bring this discussion back to things that were relevant to London, I'm just going to pick up on a couple of factors that could add to that list I just gave and which relate to the city, as these are things that would have made sense to the residents. So the first was this idea that Christian knights shouldn't be going to war with other Christian knights. The second factor, well, we need to talk about the Kulniak order of monks. I mentioned them last chapter when I described them having a chapter house that would go on to become the now lost Abbey of St. Saviour built in Bermondsey. And I said then these guys were important. Let me explain exactly why. At this time, the foremost monastic order in Europe were the Benedictine Order of Monks. They originally were supposed to run their monasteries as self-sufficient communities, where the monks prayed to God, but they also worked in the field and grew and made the food that they would come to eat and sustain themselves. As time passed, however, more and more Benedictine monks would prefer to say a prayer than plough in a field, so they would offer to say more prayers as a substitute to ploughing in a field. This carried on and grew as an aesthetic experience within monasteries, as more and more monks wanted to just be entirely devoted to God and, you know, not looking after the monastery's pigs. The Kulniak order was based upon the originally Benedictine Abbey of Kulni, established over 180 years previous to this date. It was created to be free from two things. Firstly, the monks never did any works in the field. They were entirely aesthetic, given over to prayer and study and thought. And two, 
they were legally free from all noble or church intervention. Literally, only the Pope could order the Abbey of Cluny around. Over the nearly two centuries since then, the Cluniac order split off from the Benedictines, and they became known for several really important things. A, the monks spent all their time in prayer and not working in the fields, which led to B, them hiring managers to run their estates, which actually had the side effect of making them incredibly successful and somewhat rich. And finally, C, unlike the Benedictine order, the Kulniaks were highly organized and centralized. Each abbey would tie back and take orders from the house that set them up. So the Abbey of Cluny had set up the Abbey of La Charité de Normandie, and that abbey had set up the Abbey of Bermondsey, and that abbey became the headquarters for the Kulniak order across England. The Kulniak order began to grow in wealth and status. One historian I read described the Kulniaks as the self-appointed, quote, keepers of the conscience of Christianity, unquote. They spent time contemplating God and praying and thinking about the big theological issues, but they also had cash. And this was a powerful combination. And it became more powerful when they got involved in the lucrative trade in pilgrimages. Pilgrimages were a huge business in the 10th century of Europe, and the Kulniak order quickly became synonymous with it. By the 900, they were running routes for pilgrims to the holy places in Iberia, providing shelter and relief for pilgrims. And around the same time, they began to do the same for pilgrims who wanted to go to the holy city of Jerusalem. And now, while not being 100% responsible for it, I am... One of the school of historians who believe that the Kulniaks were mostly responsible for the huge wave of pilgrims to Jerusalem that had been building over the years prior to the crusade. You may recall how I keep mentioning figures going off on pilgrimage to the holy city here and there, like Sven Godwinson did in 1051. The Kulniaks built hostels along the way of these routes and offered basic protection to the pilgrims. And this is what got them thinking about security arrangements for pilgrims. And this is where we tie back into the idea I mentioned earlier that for many theologians, Christians committing violence upon other Christians was a big bad sin. And if only we could get Christians to attack non-Christians, maybe we could even bless that kind of war. And this is where we need to talk about Spain. Spain, of course, did not exist back then and wouldn't exist for a long time. This part of Europe was a massive Muslim-controlled region of the southern Iberian peninsula called Al-Andalus, and it had been Muslim-controlled for centuries by now. It was around 1014, the king of a small Christian state called Navarre, a king called Sancho the Great, sought to push back on neighbouring Muslim lands, and he tried to get foreign kings interested in helping him but totally failed to get their attention. What he did get the attention of was the Kulniak Order of Monks, and they began using their incredible funds to help finance wars in Iberia. The Kulniaks began looking for knights in the rest of Europe who were up for travelling to Iberia and just engaging in some pro-Christian sanctioned violence. And not only enough, the mainstay of recruits for these little bushfire wars, a whole heap of knights from Normandy. So... As the 11th century progressed, these Kulniak-sponsored, Norman-filled campaigns of holy war, 
burned bright and small across Iberia. But with them came ideas that Christians fighting in such wars could gain the lands they liberated and keep them. Or, if not that, then maybe they could find redemption for their sins. Slowly, but surely, the concepts that were going to make up the Crusades were being born. These small wars really only ended about the year 1101, but they really helped codify the parameters of what a Christian holy war would look like. All that was needed was somebody to take these ideas, plus all the other ideas permeating in the air, and just sort of pull the desperate threads together. And that man was Pope Urban II. This French-born Pope was not some fire and brimstone preacher of intolerance. He was, by all accounts, a clever politician, a shrewd diplomat, and a man with a genuine geostrategic vision. Urban II had been elected Pope, and immediately he had 99 problems, and Muslims were not one. What was amidst his problems? What, where do we start? There's an anti-Pope called Gregory who was occupying Rome when he was elected. He had big issues with the Holy Roman Emperor. When he was staying in Italy, the only safe place for him was in the south of the country, which was ruled by Normans. And let's be honest, Normans are not the best allies to have, even in the worst of times. Ultimately, Urban II was seeking to increase the authority of the papacy so that he and future popes wouldn't have to deal with, you know, hostile Holy Roman emperors and anti-popes. And he had managed to improve his conditions due to some smart politics and spending quite a bit of cash so he could at least reside in Rome for most of the time. But Urban II was clearly a man looking for some kind of sign from God about how he could improve things for the papacy. And that sign from God came in the form of an embassy from the Byzantine Emperor. Apparently, back in the east, there were some new kids on the block, the Turks, who were invading Asia Minor and were pushing back Byzantium. And the emperor in Constantinople was hoping that this pope, who had improved relations between Rome and Constantinople, maybe he could arrange to send him some mercenaries. But Urban II suddenly saw a way to kill way more birds with one stone. And so, across the years 1095 and 1096, he began travelling around France and elsewhere, calling upon Christian man-tanks in armour to take up arms and go on a crusade. Only he never called it a crusade. Not once. Not ever. Urban II described it as the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that's what it was, just a pilgrimage. But if those heavily armed pilgrims could just go and, you know, free those poor oppressed Christians of Jerusalem, then they could get absolution of their many sins and get to keep whatever was nailed down, even if at the time, on the whole, the Christians of Jerusalem weren't poor or even oppressed. But that's by the by. And maybe it was the power of his sermon, or maybe it was the Gestalt, but Urban II's words set a fire through European nobility, especially in his native France. A surge of religious fervour seemed to capture an entire generation of high-ranking nobles across Europe, and the desire to take the cross and march upon Jerusalem spread like a wildfire on a dry forest. No, no king of any European state committed to get involved. I mean, the idea was too new and a bit too radical, 
and would have to wait a few years before see any kings commit to the crusading ideal. But what that wildfire of belief did ignite was the passions of the next tier down of European nobility. The counts, the earls and the dukes of Europe were up for this and all wanted to take the cross. And this leads us to England. England at the time was mostly secure under the rulership of King William Rufus, the Red King, who was basically just getting into his stride, having put down another rebellion in the north of England, known as the Rebellion of the Earls, and was now allowing Renald Flambard make him lots of money. Traditionally, we point out that the nobles and knights of England did not get involved in the First Crusade, but that isn't exactly the full story. And to understand why this is, we just need to go back and look at the relationship between King William Rufus and his older brother, Duke Robert of Normandy. If you can remember two chapters ago, I described briefly the conflict between these two. In 1087, William the Conqueror dies and decides Robert, his eldest son, should not inherit England, but that should go to his second son, William. Robert would get Normandy, pay off his younger brother, Henry, and that was that. So William Rufus had taken England and had ruled for a year or so before there was a massive rebellion as most of the powerful Norman lords in England had sided with Robert and his claim to rule, uh, rule the kingdom. William had won that, especially after a great big battle and siege in Rochester, but the conflict between the two brothers was not done, far from it. William and Robert had clashed several times over the years, and by this stage, we'd seen William Rufus sailing over and attack targets in Normandy about a half dozen times. Relations were often at absolute rock bottom with brief moments of reconciliation. And then Robert hears the words of Pope Urban II, and he wants to go to Jerusalem. But he couldn't do it, as even though he knew that William wouldn't attack Normandy while he was away, ultimately Robert needed money. He was one of the big dukes of France. He wasn't going to go alone. He was going to bring a whole army of knights with him. He needed to be in charge of people so he could be a big deal. And they needed horses and shiny new armor and food and lodgings. I mean, he had to bring a full-blown crusading army with him to march south. And he had no cash. Well, not enough to pay for this road trip. But do you know who did have cash? his younger brother, William, King of England, who was rocking out with the likes of Renard Flambard and making fortunes hand over fist, it seemed. So, Duke Robert got in contact with King William and made him one hell of an offer. Robert offered to sell him Normandy, well, mortgage the whole duchy to his baby brother. Now, this wasn't going to be a forever thing. Depending on who you read, William was only going to own Normandy for either three years or five years or, quote, for however long Robert was away, unquote. But during that time, William could run Normandy as he wished and, above all, keep every single penny of revenue he could raise from it. For William, this was an amazing deal. I mean, like, seriously. He'd get to own his father's entire duchy and not have to fight for any of it. This would allow him to consolidate all his father's holdings for a few years. And given the fact that Duke Robert wasn't married, 
It meant that if his older brother happened to die on that pilgrimage, William would legitimately inherit everything. William Rufus, of course, said yes to this idea, but there was a slight hiccup. Robert needed cash fast, like insanely fast, and it wasn't a small amount. He needed 10,000 silver marks, which was about at the time, £6,666. Now, trying to calculate how much that is in today's money is really tough. The Bank of England's inflation calculator only goes as far back as 1209. And that says £6,666 in 1209 would be worth at least £11 million by today's money. And given that we're talking before the year 1100 here, it was probably a significant amount more. So in 1096, Duke Robert was asking for a staggering amount of treasure from his younger brother, King William, and he needed it yesterday. William sat down and tried to work out where to get such a great fortune, and within a day or so, he knew exactly how. He would tax it direct from the nobles of England. All that silver had to come from them. In a reign famed for extreme amounts of taxation, William Rufus inflicted a colossal amount of emergency tax upon England's nobles. The descriptions we have are of bishops and abbots and abbesses having to hand over literally all their church's precious metals, uh, huge amounts of church placed. Meanwhile, the earls and barons and sheriffs of England also had to cough up, and they ended up despoiling whole communities of peasants and even bankrupting their own knights in a desperate desire to fulfill the king's extraordinary demand. By early September 1096, William had his 10,000 marks of silver, and England had been crippled by the tax burden. I cannot stress how serious this was. The sudden crippling taxation was probably responsible for the fact that this tax was followed by a serious famine in parts of England caused by its imposition. And this fact answers that mystery. Why did no English knights and nobles ever join the First Crusade? Because you see, in all probability, there could well have been a plethora of English nobility, many of whom had estates in Normandy, who would have happily taken the cross and marched out on those First Crusades. But they just had to basically get rid of all their disposable income over an eight-week period of July and August 1096. If all of this money was being raised just to send Duke Robert of Normandy off to Jerusalem, how could they afford their own expeditions on the Great Pilgrimage? Simply, they could not. And this crippling tax did not come in isolation for many nobles. What you, dear listener, would not have known as last chapter I was trying to focus on London, ignoring the national picture it had. The nobles of England had just faced a rebellion where many nobles only escaped death due to crippling fines inflicted upon them by the king, and that was followed by a serious conflict upon Wales, which placed burdens and costs upon many other nobles, and then along comes this special emergency tax. It's worth noting that there were some English nobles who did march south with Duke Robert, but I'll talk about them in a second. All we need to know is that in September, when Robert went off on crusade, William moved in, consolidating his new acquisition, while leaving others, including Ronald Frambard, to run England. 
And it was in this initial takeover of Normandy that something else happened that was to definitely change the story of London forever. There's a little story hidden within Aidmar's account of the many sins of William Rufus. Aidmar said that when William was in Rouen, some members of the Jewish community came to him and asked if he could help them. They said that members of the Jewish community had recently converted to Christianity. They asked if the king could intervene and force these Christians back to Judaism. Aidmar says that King William Rufus said of course he would, for a sizable amount of cash. The representatives of the Jewish community handed over the cash. William Rufus summoned the former Jews and demanded they return to their original faith, and they, duly intimidated, did. Aidmar then says later, a Jewish father came to the king filled with pain that his son had also converted to Christianity and wondered if the king would do the same for him. A fee was agreed upon, and Rufus summoned the young man. The story goes that the king first asked, then ordered, and then finally threatened the young man to return to his father's faith. But so strident was this new Christian and his new Christian belief that he impressed the king, who shamefaced refused to carry out any of the threats. He did, however, demand the father pay him the agreed fee for trying, at least. Aidmar included these stories, and he probably were told them by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm. And what's really interesting, if they're true, and I for one doubt the second one, well, if they were true, then neither Anselm or Aidmar included a little detail about King William's interactions with the Jewish community in Rouen, and that detail kind of changes everything. See, as the Crusaders had been gathering in Rouen, you suddenly had a large body of zealous knights, all desperate for the urge to kill non-Christians to prove how properly Christian they were. And the nearest body of non-Christians? The large Jewish community of Rouen. By all accounts, the Crusaders, before they left for the little jaunt, fell upon this community. And the ones they did not murder out of hand, they forced to convert to Christianity or suffer the same fate. The way Aidmar tells that story, which has got a bunch of Jews turning all, all upset at members of their community, being swayed by the true faith in the risen Christ and bribing the king to prevent that, as opposed to the stuff we have evidence for, which suggests a deeply traumatised community approaching their new noble patron and asking for his help after the horrors of a pogrom had been inflicted upon them, these people couldn't return to their Jew Jewish faith without their Christian neighbours thinking they were backtracking. They needed a noble to order them to. Kind of changes the way you see that story, doesn't it? Idmar and Anselm left out that element from the tale, and for me, that condemns them. We do know that the Jewish community of Rouen survived the savage wave of violence unleashed by the pilgrims. And we also know that William Rufus seems to have invited several of them to move somewhere possibly safer. London. Now, 
The issues we have with London's medieval Jewish community is that our early records are, I'm afraid, vague. I've read several books which say that William the Conqueror had first invited over Jews to live in London, but precise records are very hard to find. And I've read at least one book which says comments within Saxon documents does suggest there were Jews living in England in pre-Norman times. But based on everything I've seen, I think it's the most significant movement of Jews to London in the early medieval period came during the reign of William Rufus and came about with him briefly owning Normandy because his brother wanted to go kill in the name of God. These earliest Jewish residents sailing over from Rouen to London created the first genuine Jewish community here in England. But this move by Rufus wasn't done out of any mercy or compassion. William Rufus, as we've established by now, was a king who seemed possessed by a terrible need to just generate money. He'd just crippled England for a significant amount of bullion reserve, and here was a potential solution to future financial problems. Jewish residents of his domain were under his personal protection, and this was simply because the act of lending cash for interest was forbidden to Christians by church edict. The Jewish communities of Europe had been forced into this role. They could cross borders between Muslim and Christian lands, and out of pure survival, because of the sheer amount of times they've been attacked, they developed an early credit system within their community. And ultimately, they ended up becoming the group of people monarchs could blackmail for cash. Jews could never refuse a monarch money, as this removed any and all protections for them. So this new Jewish community that travelled from Rouen to London was brought over and placed under the king's protection so he could blackmail them for cash at some point in the future. This for me was the true birth of London's medieval Jewish community. It started here, and for a while it was the only place in England with a Jewish community before one was eventually established in Oxford. I wish I could say in future episodes this reflected well on London's multicultural history. Alas, it does not. The story of medieval London's Jewish community is one of the constant threat of violence, of men and women and children trying desperately just to live normal lives, surrounded by bigotry, hatred, religious intolerance, open lies about them, and the ever-present threat of danger. London is going to erupt in anti-Jewish pogroms more times than I care to contemplate in the years to come, before some medieval king is going to arbitrarily decide to exile all Jews from England at a future date. One of the great legacies of the Crusade, then, upon London, was not just the birth of there being a proper Jewish community in the city over a thousand years ago, but also the start of several centuries of shame upon the city as violent anti-Semitism was to find seed in the dark soil of the Norman city. Meanwhile, Robert of Normandy went off on crusade. And while many lower-tiered nobility from England were too broke to be able to join him on the pilgrimage, records indicate he was leading pilgrims 
from Normandy, Brittany, Scotland, and even Denmark, and there were some English nobility in there. We know in his army were the likes of Audrey of Grand Massil and his brother Ivo, the Sheriff of Leicester. Their father had fought with William the Conqueror at Hastings and in subsequent campaigns, and he'd become one of England's major landlords. Also included with Earl Ralph of East Anglia, his wife Emma, the Countess of Norfolk, and their eldest son Alan. Ralph had been one of the principal instigators of the revolt of the earls, had fled England and was living in Brittany and resisting William Rufus's attempts to capture him. All three joined the crusade and made it as far as Jerusalem, but Ralph and Emma apparently died on the return journey. Another rebel against William with English ties was Philip the Grammarian of Bellamy, the son of the first Earl of Shrewsbury, who was to die at the Siege of Antioch. And also in that army was old William de Percy, a Norman who may have first arrived in England at Edward the Confessor's behest and who had owned a multitude of estates up in North Riding of Yorkshire. There were others as well. Around Robert's armies, however, other armies were led by nobles who've actually appeared in this story of London before. You may remember how in chapter 54 I mentioned the shenanigans caused in England by the proposed invasion of King Canute IV of Denmark and how this had been organised and supported by Earl Robert of Flanders. That Earl Robert of Flanders had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem via the Kulmliak Travel Agency sometime around 1086. Anyway, he died in 1093 and his son Robert II took the cross and was leading his own army south. The most significant army in hindsight was led by the sons of a character we encountered all the way back in chapter 43. You may remember I kept mentioning Count Eustace II of Boulogne. He was a guy who picked a fight with the town of Dover, which allowed Edward the Confessor pick a fight with Godwin back in the Godfather trilogy. And Count Eustace was then the guy who held the Pope's war banner at the Battle of Hastings. And then I mentioned how he rebelled against William the Conqueror before reconciling with him. That guy. He was all around the edges of English history. His first marriage had been to the daughter of King Aethelred. He was the brother-in-law of Edward the Confessor, which is why he was tight with him back in the day. But when she died, Eustace had married a woman called Ida, the daughter of the Duke of Lorraine. And with her, he'd had three sons, Eustace Jr., Godfrey and Baldwin. Well, Eustace II had finally died, and his eldest boy, Eustace III, took over Boulogne, and he'd actually joined Bishop Odo back in his rebellion against the newly made King William Rufus, and it actually been one of the rebels besieged up in Rochester Castle. Since then, Eustace had mostly kept his head down while his two younger brothers had focused far more on the territories of his mother's kin. And in 1096, all three brothers enthusiastically took the cross. And the only reason I'm mentioning these guys and their army is, well, Godfrey and Baldwin would go on to become the first two kings of Jerusalem. So yeah, the guy who started the whole Godfather trilogy clash I went on about, his kids did good. Also included in the list of people traveling on the crusade that needs to be mentioned is a guy called Stephen of Blois, who we should mention as he was married to the daughter of William the Conqueror, and he was brother-in-law to the King William Rufus and Duke Robert. Now, by all accounts, Stephen did not want to go on crusade, but his wife wore the trousers in the relationship, and so he, she insisted he should go, and off he went traveling with his brother-in-law and we're going to mention him because his son 
also called Stephen of Bois, was going to have a big role in the future story of London. Finally included in this list of notables, we've got to include Bishop Odo of Bayer. He'd not returned to England since he'd been defeated, trying to put Robert on the throne, and he decided to go on the pilgrimage. He only got as far as southern Italy before the journey seemed to get too much for him, and he died in Sicily. The story of what Robert faced on the crusade is beyond the scope of this episode, and there's only a few moments I want to mention. Um, according to one historian during the campaign, Duke Robert ran into Edgar Aetheling, who was supposedly leading a small flotilla of supply ships for the Crusaders and took a small port, which he handed over to Robert. There's some doubt on the providence of this claim, with records saying he was in Scotland at the time. We do know that Edgar Aetheling did apparently make his pilgrimage to Jerusalem at some point and was honoured by the Anglo-Saxon Vangarian Guard of Byzantium on his way back. But it may have been in one of the later, after expeditions, not the actual First Crusade, such as the one that's going to be led by Stephen of Bra, who actually ran away from the Siege of Antioch, got home, got called and considered a coward by everybody in Europe, was ordered by his wife to turn around and undo his shame, and launched what we call the Crusade of the Craven about two years after the First Crusade ended. But, ultimately, the crusade happened, Jerusalem was taken, Robert travelled back, a hero, a crusader, he married on the way, and sent word to his brother William that he was expecting his duchy back, and that leads us back to England and William, and that leads us to the circumstances that caused William Rufus's death, and I'm going to cover that in another episode as it is important. And at this point, I have to urge any and all listeners that if they want a more complete account of the Crusades, there exist many books and podcasts that will do a much better job than I did. I'm just going to bring this back to the introduction I made and point out that this wasn't the end of the impact of the Crusades upon London. As I said, a couple of years from now, Stephen Ablar will leave a crusade to supplement the outnumbered and outgunned state of Jerusalem, which may get Edgar Aetheling involved. A few years later, the King of Sweden will launch a small crusade and that will introduce the idea of crusades having royal support. And a few years after that, the Mammoth Second Crusade will be called. And that will include a contingent of English who will set sail, get as far as Portugal, end up doing a lot of fighting there, and many will go home at that point. And it will only be in the Third Crusade that a designated King of England will actually lead a force of crusaders to the Holy Land. But that was Richard the Lionheart, and it... Okay, it's complicated. And then later on, Edward I, Longshanks, would be Prince of Wales and fighting in the Holy Land when his father died and he actually inherited the throne. And yeah, that's an even more complicated and longer story. So the, the chronicle of the Crusades and London has a while to go yet. But it wasn't just the great and the good who changed London. Within a few years, the repercussions of Jerusalem being under Christian control would find its way to London, and these would bring some fascinating impacts upon the city, and two of the biggest are events just around the corner in our tale. The arrival of military order of knights who'd been founded in the aftermath of that crusade. The first is the Knights Templar 
who originally settled in Holborn for a few years before moving to a nicer riverside location and creating what we today call Chancery Lane to facilitate moving from one place to another. They then took over a large space that exists to this day. Anyone who travels around the inner and outer temple regions of central London strides not just in the current heart of the British legal profession, but in a region named after and imprinted upon by those knights. At its heart, their church still exists, one of my personal favourite churches in London, and that's their legacy and the legacy of the Crusades set in stone still to this day. And north of London at the time, in Clerkenwell, the Order of the Knights of St. John, the Knights Hospitaller, established their headquarters there and would remain there for some time. But time passes and the Order no longer exists. But Clerkenwell is still where you find the headquarters of the Order of Knights' modern incarnation, St. John's Ambulance. And every time I attend a football match or I'm leaving Brixton Academy after a gig or I'm feeling crushed by the crowds at the Notting Hill Carnival. I can glance up and see the St. John's Ambulance crews, their black and silver symbol of the Knights Hospitaller still on them, and reminded that small parts of the Crusades exist like little shards of ghosts of times past. London is filled with ghosts like these. Turn any street corner and the past just sits there, connected by gossamer threads, just out of reach, and reminding us that history lies heavy upon its crowded and busy streets. And that's where I'm going to end it. While I'm confident of my research and the story I've told you, I urge you, dear listener, to keep in mind that I am only one voice here, one narrator. And this means my version should not be taken as definitive, and I would be horrified if anyone thought I was being definitive. When I post the script to this, I will be including a bibliography to this and all future posts I make. I figure, why not share with people the books I use? I'll be blunt, the only reason I haven't done this so far has been a matter of time. Writing one roughly 45-minute script per week has been difficult and challenging, and I don't always have time to fit in the books, but I will endeavour to start doing this from now on. Thank you for listening, and I hope this little excursion helps make what's to come easier to understand, especially next episode, where the implications of Robert's return from the Crusade would have grave ramifications for England and London. I'll see you anon. Bye.